Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're delving back into the ancient past, winding the clock back thousands of years to discover the stories of Denisovans and direwolves that researchers are now able to read in the fragments of DNA left in bones or even in dirt. For a field focusing on things that died thousands of years ago, ancient DNA research is very much alive. New genetic tools and technologies are allowing scientists to delve back tens or even hundreds of thousands of years into the past in a way that was never possible before. Back in June this year, Chinese scientists unveiled an ancient skull from so-called Dragon Man, which might represent the first example of an elusive species of human that lived nearly 150,000 years ago. And last year, a team at the University of Copenhagen and their colleagues announced they'd managed to successfully read the sequence of proteins extracted from the tooth enamel of a human ancestor, Homo antecessor, who lived around 800,000 years ago, making this the oldest human molecular biology evidence we have on record so far. Researchers have even managed to extract and sequence DNA from viruses in 30,000-year-old human teeth, showing that the diseases that plagued our ancestors aren't so dissimilar to the ones we catch today. All of these advances are opening a new window into the past to understand the species that were around in different parts of the world, how they interacted together, and why, in the case of the ones that have gone extinct, they're no longer with us. One of the people who's digging into the past through the use of ancient DNA to understand why a species might have vanished is Dr Kieran Mitchell from the University of Adelaide. His species of choice? The dire wolf. Yep, they are real. Or rather, they were. Yeah, that's a surprising thing when you talk to people just to begin with, is that a lot of people don't actually realise that they were a, a real animal, you know, extinct now, but they were as real as, you know, lions and tigers and other things that we see around us today. They're not just mythical animals that you see on TV programs like Game of Thrones or read about in fantasy novels. So, yeah, that, that's a surprise to a lot of people straight off the bat is that, yeah, they were roaming around, you know, as recently as uh, sort of 10,000 years ago, maybe, when they became extinct along with a whole bunch of other, these other things like, you know, saber-toothed cats and giant ground sloths and that kind of thing. All the cool stuff. So what were they like? I'm imagining something just like massive teeth, slobbering, uh, maybe slightly fluorescent. I don't know. What, what's a dire wolf like? That's maybe where we've been misled a little bit by popular culture as well. So dire wolves, you know, they have this sort of fearsome reputation. They're called dire wolves. And they were probably a little bit bigger than living grey wolves. That's the species of wolf that everyone will be familiar with. Maybe they were slightly bigger, maybe 10%, 20% bigger, but more so than sort of dimension-wise bigger, they were a bit stockier and heavier than a grey wolf would be. So, you know, you certainly wouldn't be riding one uh, into battle or anything like that, but they'd be a pretty formidable sight if you came across one, or more likely if you came across a pack of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, so like these big chunky boys, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, big chunky wolves. And they were chunky probably because they'd evolved to hunt all these big chunky animals that were roaming around North America for thousands of years. So things like bison, things like, you know, there were mammoths and mastodons in North America, all of these really big fauna, these megafauna 
they would have been specialised to prey on those species. So they are obviously very cool, but what made you decide to try and investigate their natural history and their evolution? Where, where did that journey start for you? So for myself and for a lot of my colleagues, we're interested in finding out what past ecosystems were like. And one that we're particularly interested in is in North America, uh, where direwolves are from, because there are all these different extinct animals that we know from North America. There's sort of direwolves, there's saber-toothed cats, extinct species of horses and camels and bison, mastodons and mammoths. There's all of these things that were all living together for tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years until they sort of abruptly became extinct. And so they lived in North America through all these long periods of climatic change, all these ice ages. And so there was a, an ecosystem and a community of animals there that had really evolved all together into this sort of unique ecosystem that was really resilient to all this climate and environmental change that was sort of happening cyclically over tens of thousands of years. So we, we really want to know how that ecosystem evolved, how it worked, and then sort of ultimately maybe why it changed and why all those species became extinct as well. And one part of trying to investigate that and to sort of start to answer those questions is to know who all the players are, basically, to really get into the nuts and bolts of how things are related to each other and how extinct species are related to living species, because that can help us to learn about what these extinct species were actually like. If we can find something that's still alive, that's a little bit like that extinct species, we can start to draw inferences then. So we want to know what the direwolf's role exactly was in that sort of ancient ecosystem. And so we'd been drawing comparisons for a long time with living grey wolves because we thought that that was probably the nearest living analogue of what a direwolf was. We thought they were probably pretty closely related species or maybe even just subspecies of one single species. So where we were coming from with our study was really just to test that, to, you know, ground proof it and make sure that that was a sensible comparison to be making. So here's where we bring the genetics in. Now, obviously, direwolves are extinct. Uh, wolves today are not. But how do you go about getting DNA from a direwolf to try and see if they're actually related to today's wolves? I'm really confused by this, because if they lived so long ago, what sort of DNA can you get? What sort of samples do you get it from? That's a great question. And so my colleagues and I at the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA and at other ancient DNA labs around the world, we specialise in really getting this genetic information from some pretty old samples. Because what happens basically is when any animal dies, the DNA in your body, in your cells, sort of doesn't immediately uh, degrade or evaporate. It sticks around for a while. You know, they're big molecules. They're actually pretty resilient molecules as well. That The double helix of the DNA lends it some stability. It doesn't sort of disappear overnight. What happens is that it sort of gradually decays away over, you know, years, tens of years, centuries. And that all depends on the environment that the bone's actually in. So, you know, if this animal dies in a really cold part of the world and its bones, you know, fall into a cave or a crevasse in the ice or something like that, those are perfect conditions for DNA preservation. Just like, you know, you would put a piece of meat in your freezer, basically. And, you know, hopefully it will be just as good when you take it out, you know, maybe 12 months later. Not 10,000 years later, though. <laughs> no, perhaps not 10,000 years later. Although if you really do have great conditions for DNA preservation, you can push up to about a million years 
and still get DNA from those bones. Unfortunately, in the case of the dire wolf, they actually don't live in very cold parts of the world, despite what you might see on Game of Thrones. They were much more sort of tropical or temperate animals. And so what that means is that most of the bones that we have from dire wolves are from, you know, much warmer parts of the US in particular. And that means that we can only really easily get DNA from them. So it sort of decays and uh, erodes away much faster than it would in cold climates. And so we're, we're happy or we're lucky to be able to get DNA from things that are sort of 50 or 60,000 years old. And so what we do is, you know, we have to go out and um, collaborate quite often with museum curators to find bones that we think are going to preserve this DNA. And then we take little pieces of that bone back to our ancient DNA laboratories. So we might only need a tiny, tiny little piece of bone. We dissolve it down and that releases the DNA out of these little pockets in the bone. And then we can centrifuge it really, really, really quickly. And that lets us then pellet down and spin down all of the other stuff that was on the bone, like little bits of dirt and little bits of leftover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a scientific <laughs> term, right? That is, yeah. And then we can get rid of that stuff, the crap that we've uh, centrifuged down, and then we just have the DNA from that extinct animal in a tube of clear liquid. Wow, pop it through a sequencer. Bob's your uncle. You've got the Exactly, whiz-bang. DNA sequence. So when you started looking at the sequence of the, the DNA that you were getting from the direwolves, I mean, my first question is like, was it any good? Uh, because obviously DNA does degrade. And yeah, how did you start piecing it together? And then what did it actually look like when you did think that you had sort of a sequence from, from direwolves here? So the DNA, it wasn't great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. Nickers. We tried a lot of samples. I think the final figure, we were looking at 50 or 60 bones of direwolves from all across the United States. And so any of your North American listeners are probably familiar with the fact that the La Brea Tar Pits is probably the most famous place for getting direwolf fossils. There's hundreds and hundreds of direwolf fossils that have been recovered from the La Brea Tar Pits. Unfortunately, none of the samples that we tried from the La Brea Tar Pits gave us any DNA at all, probably because, you know, California is probably a little bit too warm to be able to get DNA, especially if the bones have been sitting in like a nice bath of tar for thousands of yeah. years as well. So we, we had to sort of go a little bit further afield to be able to find some samples we could actually get the DNA from. And we ended up with five samples out of our sample of 50 or 60 that we could get some DNA from. And so that included mainly places a little bit further north. So one of the samples came from Wyoming, two came from Idaho, another one from Ohio. So all states that are a little bit more northerly in the US where the DNA preservation was just a little bit better. And that allowed us to piece together just enough of the genomes of these animals to be able to make the comparisons that we needed. We weren't looking at, uh, you know, mammoth quality DNA here that they get from mummies dug out of permafrost. We were really having to put together this jigsaw of um, really old and fragmented molecules to build a picture of how direwolves were re related to other species. So then how did you make that comparison? So what did you start comparing them with and, and what did you find? So what we need to do then is once we have our DNA from the, uh, the dire wolf that we've sort of reconstructed on a computer, we need to compare that to genomes from the other species that we think they might be related to. 
And so what we did is to get a whole lot of genomes from living grey wolves that we think were probably their closest relative, but then we need other comparisons as well to kind of establish just how close a relationship that might be. And so we also had DNA data from different species of jackal, from the African wild dog, from coyotes, and a number of other species as well of just sort of these wolf-like animals. And so all we're doing then is looking at the number of A's, C's, G's and T's that are the same between different species and that differ between different species. Because the more differences you have, the more distantly related you are, and it tends to be that the more similar your genomes are, the more similar your relationship is. And so we performed all of these comparisons between the direwolf and all these living species as well. And what we found was not at all what we expected. Because based on, you know, about 100 years worth of work of paleontological research, the consensus had kind of been that the direwolf must be a very close relative of the grey wolf. And that's sort of the basis for our whole sort of comparison and how we think about direwolves as members of that ancient ecosystem. So what we found, though, was that direwolves are not at all close relatives of grey wolves. In fact, they aren't particularly close relatives of any living species that we compared them to. That is so bizarre. But So they, they look like wolves, so as far as we know from the bones, this should be a wolf. But when you actually look at the DNA, it's just not. Exactly. So that came as a big surprise. And so we spent a lot of time really making sure that that result was correct. And yeah, really, that's really helped having those five different samples that we had the DNA from. So now you've had this big kind of family revelation that direwolves are not the same as today's wolves and that they've gone on their own evolutionary journey. What does then this tell us coming back to your original question about like, what is their place in the world of the time? And the other question as well is like, why don't we have them here anymore? Why did they go extinct? So based on our results, we came up with a couple of interesting observations or hypotheses about exactly that question. So one thing, that our results tell us is that the direwolf has a very, very long evolutionary history in North America, sort of much longer than we'd previously maybe appreciated. Because based on the fossil record, we'd thought that maybe the direwolf had evolved and had been living in North America for 50,000 to 100,000, maybe 200,000 years. What our results really show us is that it's probably more like five or six million years that the direwolf has been there in North America, sort of co-evolving with all of these other species around it. So that lets us imagine it as maybe a much more specialised animal than we'd previously thought. Because the thinking up until our study had been that direwolves, if they are different to grey wolves, are just kind of a really recent offshoot of that lineage of grey wolves. And so grey wolves, they have a bit of a reputation for being very generalist and very sort of flexible and adaptable animals. So you find them in all sorts of habitats, eating all sorts of things uh, around the world today. And so that was a bit confusing when we were thinking about a close similarity between the dire wolf and the grey wolf. So if a grey wolf is like a direwolf and the grey wolf's really adaptable, then shouldn't the direwolf be really adaptable as well? And if that's the case, then why did it become extinct? So in a lot of ways, it actually makes sense that 
they're these distantly related, very specialized uh, lineage that didn't have that same level of adaptability as gray wolves. And maybe that really is what uh, did them in in the end, is that they couldn't adapt to changes in their ecosystem when all these other species around them that they relied on to eat uh, were becoming extinct. They maybe couldn't adapt to other sources of food and so they became extinct as well. So they became extinct because basically they're picky eaters. I think so. <laughs> I think that that's kind of what we have to conclude. Wow. And it's it's really fascinating to hear the stories of what we can find out about the past, about this completely different time from these, these ancient bones. And I, I find it fascinating that you can start to understand like the context of what was going on so long ago by comparing species that are alive today and what we know about their evolutionary journeys. So are there any other animals that you're applying this kind of idea to? Tell me about some other weirdos that you're uh, investigating from the past. Well, being from Australia, I have sort of a, a Southern Hemisphere bias, I guess, because a lot of these sort of charismatic, enigmatic uh, Northern Hemisphere species get a lot of the attention. You know, mammoths, uh, the direwolf now, sort of saber-toothed cats, all of these things that you see very, you know, uh, prominently in popular culture. They've got good PR. <laughs> they do. They've got good PR, people. I'm interested in some better representation of some of our cool Southern Hemisphere extinct species. And so one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment is on sequencing DNA from some of Australia's giant short-faced kangaroos, which a lot of people probably have no idea even existed. Wow. So these things, some of them were so big that they wouldn't have actually been able to hop anymore because the size of them would have meant that hopping would have placed too much pressure on the tendons in their legs and basically would have snapped their legs. So you have to imagine these giant sort of two metre tall kangaroos just striding around the landscape. So that's one project that I'm really interested in is how can we learn more about these weird extinct kangaroos using ancient DNA? <laughs> they're just absolutely blows my mind this sort of giant like shuffling kangaroo shuffling around <laughs> anything else on your shopping list of, of weird extinct species so another fun project was one recently in the last few years where we were looking at an extinct species of rhino from eurasia so through across siberia and it has kind of a, a complicated uh, scientific name but the most popular sort of common name that it's known by is the Siberian unicorn. And so it's clearly a rhino. We know that from the fossils, but it would have had an absolutely enormous single horn protruding basically out of the center of its head. So in contrast to some of our living rhinos that have two horns a lot of the time, and the horns are kind of further down the snout, this thing would have looked a bit more unicorny than perhaps some of our living species uh, with this enormous horn. And so one part of the study that we did a couple of years ago was not only to sequence the DNA from this Siberian unicorn and establish that, yes, actually, you know, it definitely is a rhino. But what we did was to radiocarbon date a whole lot of the, the bones of this animal to try and figure out exactly when it became extinct. Because that was a big question as well is, did this species of rhino, this Siberian unicorn, become extinct 100,000 years, maybe even 300,000 years ago? Or was it more recent than that? And so we found that actually it became extinct maybe 35, 36,000 years ago. 
And the, the interesting part of that is that it means that early anatomically modern humans leaving Africa might have actually encountered some of these animals. Unicorns so are it's real. Fun to think about. <laughs> yeah, so it's fun to think about maybe this Siberian unicorn had some sort of, you know, lasting impact on the zeitgeist and somehow got passed down through uh, oral histories to become the mythical unicorn. Of course, there's probably much more likely candidates for that. So things like our living species of rhino, narwhals and, you know, mutated um, deer with only single horns and something like that. But it's still fun to think that, well, maybe there's a little bit of this extinct rhino in the mix as well. All these species that lived in the past, we know that evolution is, let's say, sort of a tangled web. And when we think about human origins and human evolution, there's there's been some funny business, I think is the best way of putting it, in our evolutionary history. Do you see any evidence of hybridization, sort of odd liaisons in the kinds of species that you've been looking at from the past? That's a great question. And what we do find is that, yes, that sort of story about the, you know, tangled web that we see emerging as part of our human history seems to be replicated across all different animal species as well. Like we look at some of these extinct species and we find that, oh, actually, some of our living species still have ancestry. So things like living grizzly bears, brown bears still have a little bit of ancestry. Some of those populations from extinct cave bears so one thing that we were really interested in looking at is whether there was any trace of ancestry from dire wolves in any of our living species of canids. So any of these other wolf-like species, particularly, could we find any dire wolf ancestry in living grey wolves or coyotes from North America, where you'd think that, you know, they were living there in the same place at the same time. If something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Uh, so that was another part of the comparisons that we did between the genomes of all these animals. And we were a little bit surprised to find that there was no signal, no evidence for any direwolf ancestry in any living population of wolf-like sort of species, whether it's the grey wolf, the coyote, jackals or anything like that. No evidence at all, which is surprising because on the spectrum of types of animals that will hybridise with each other, Wolves and their relatives are really far up the, you know, they're not too yeah, fussy. Yeah, do dogs generally, not, not fussy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that was a real surprise to us. And that we sort of started to think might play into the extinction of the dire wolf as well. Because one thing that can happen, so hybridization, you know, a lot of the time is maybe, you know, just like a happy accident kind of thing. It's a byproduct. It's not necessarily evolutionarily meaningful when it happens, but occasionally sort of adaptive genes can transfer between species. And so a species can acquire, you know, new variation or new genes from a species that they've hybridized with, and that can help them to adapt to their environment. So maybe that was just another nail in the dire wolf's coffin that they couldn't interbreed with grey wolves and they couldn't interbreed with coyotes or they couldn't or they didn't. And so another path towards them being able to adapt to changes in their environment was maybe closed off to them. So they'd maybe spent so long being specialised, lost interest in all of these other species, just focused in on eating all their big prey animals and maybe that's what did them in in the end. 
So picky eaters and picky shaggers and, and then you're gone. Exactly. Exactly right. Yep, that's it. Not exactly scientific, but certainly memorable. Thanks to Kieran Mitchell from the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. If you're not sick of the sound of my voice by now and have access to the BBC iPlayer or BBC Sounds, you can check out all 10 episodes from both series of Ingenious, my Radio 4 programmes looking at the science and the stories behind some of my favourite human genes. This time around, we did the fat gene, FTO, the Huntington's gene, the warrior gene, the HIV gene, and the eyeball gene, or PAC6. Each episode is only 15 minutes and they're really good fun, so do go back and check them out if you have some time over the summer. Search for Ingenious Cat Arnie or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. And as we highlighted last time, my latest book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, is now out in paperback in the UK, along with the hardback, Kindle and audio versions, and a US edition. We've also got translations coming out in various languages, including Hungarian, Taiwanese, German, Japanese and Polish. Just head to your favourite real-life or online retailer or go to rebelcellbook.com to buy a signed copy or a bookplate sticker. Thank you. Moving on from dire wolves, giant kangaroos and Siberian unicorns to our own species, I caught up with Dr Benjamin Verneau, a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig in Germany. Rather than studying bones, he's been digging for DNA in more unlikely places in order to unearth the stories from our ancient ancestors. The idea basically is that we study human history by looking at the DNA from bones mostly, right? So if we want to study ancient human history, but for large parts of our history, there's no bones for us to look at. We look in a cave, we know that Neanderthals lived there and there just was no, there are no Neanderthal bones in most ancient caves. And so if we want to study them, we're sort of really limited by the sort of dozen or two dozen or so bones that we can find. And the idea was basically that these people lived in these caves, they made stone tools, they cut themselves, you know, they shed their skin and you have DNA and everything that comes out of your body has DNA in it, right? And that, that stuff accumulates on the floor of the cave and maybe, maybe, maybe the DNA is still there. And it turns out that it is. And so by getting that DNA, we can study the genetics and the history of the people who lived in those places, even if they didn't sort of keep their dead people around in the caves also. It seems kind of logical because I know in recent years there's been a lot of excitement about this idea of environmental DNA and people, you know, you take soil and you look at what's in there and it's like, oh, yeah, there's going to be stuff in there from a long time ago, potentially. So, I mean, how long ago are we talking about and also what kind of DNA, what kinds of things are you looking for? Presumably when you scoop up some soil, take DNA out of it and then have a look. Yeah, so you can go back pretty far. I mean, the oldest that we have from our lab is about 250,000 years old, but that's from Denisova Cave in Siberia, which has really good DNA preservation, even in bones and, and things like that. Other labs have gotten much older DNA, even from permafrost cores 
you know, and at that point, those things have been frozen for 700,000 years or 500,000 years, something like that. But no, the, the DNA preservation is sort of similar to what you would see in bones. So we can get things from Europe. It's harder to get things from Africa or the tropics. And what kind of DNA are you looking at? What, what sort of sequences can you find when you start to analyze this? Yeah, so previously what we had done is looked at mitochondrial DNA, which is sort of this is the DNA that you inherit just from your mother and from your grandmother and your great-grandmother. And so it really only tells you about this one lineage going backwards in time. And for human history, it's actually not that helpful. It's not that informative to know about the mitochondrial DNA. I may have the same mitochondrial DNA as someone who I'm not even remotely related to, right? And so what we did in this project is we moved that to nuclear DNA, which is the rest of your genome. And that you inherit from both parents and all four grandparents and all eight great grandparents, you know, so it represents the full tree going backwards. And by looking at the nuclear DNA, then you can really get a much richer picture of someone's ancestry. So tell me about the most recent study that you did. Where were you looking and who were the people that you were digging their DNA up? Yeah, so since this was the first time we did this, we wanted to kind of have some verification that it would work, right? So we did it in three different caves. And for two of those, we actually already have DNA from bones from those caves. So we could compare the DNA we get from the sediments to the DNA from the bones and say, okay, this method works, right? We can actually replicate the same histories that we get from the bones in the sediments. And then, of course, where we want to do this is where there's no bones to be found, where there are no Neanderthal bones. So we went to this cave in Spain, where we know that Neanderthals lived for about 50,000 years, you know, so this huge time period, as long as Europeans have been in Europe, right, essentially. And yet there are no Neanderthal bones there. You know, it's from a time period when there aren't really any bones from the surrounding area either. And so we just didn't know anything about these people who lived there, but we know that they made tools, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all in the cave. Yeah, and so we got we were able to get Neanderthal DNA from really the entire time period that these people lived there. And what we found may not sound so incredible, because what we found is that there were not just one group of Neanderthals living there, but two groups of Neanderthals living there. But for me, it's really nice because, you know, because we could really get DNA from essentially every, you know, few thousand years going all the way through this 50,000 year period, we could really identify the precise time where the one population was replaced by the other population. You know, then we can look and say, what else is going on in the world around at that time period? It sort of allows you a much finer resolution there. And what was going on? So there was a population and they went away, died out, got replaced. What, what can you tell about the dynamics of that situation there? Yeah. So having sold it like that, I then have to follow up with, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, you got to follow um, through. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But, you know, I think that at this time period, there was there were big climate changes happening. So the world was getting cooler, you know, so it could have been that the previous Neanderthals died out because it was too cold or because the things that they hunted went away and moved away. It could have been that they just moved. You know, we don't really know where they went, but we do know that shortly thereafter, they were replaced by a newer group of Neanderthals. One thing that was interesting about this is that we saw sort of a similar pattern happening across Europe. So we didn't just look at the Neanderthals that we got the DNA from the caves. We also looked at other Neanderthals. And we see at the same time period that the Neanderthals that are are leaving or dying out or something's happening to them at this cave in Spain, that this is happening elsewhere in Europe. And then they were being replaced by these younger Neanderthals. So, you know, it could be that what was happening in Spain is actually a more universal thing happening in Europe. 
what kind of level of granularity can you get in the analysis? You know, can you see family relationships? Can you distinguish individuals? Or is it a bit like, it's just kind of a mess of DNA and we can make some patterns within it? It's kind of several of those things. So my expectation going in was 100% that it was just going to be a mess of DNA. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you have groups of Neanderthals living in this cave, working in this cave, you're not going to expect to be able to identify individual people, right? It's just going to be a mess of, of the DNA. So for my methods, that's actually okay because we think about populations, right? So if we have DNA from a population, that's also okay. But actually several of the sediment samples really look like they only have one person in them. We can't be sure, right? But we can say that they only have one type of mitochondrial DNA in it. So at least they have to be brothers and sisters or something like that. And that their DNA comes from people of one sex, right? So all male, all the same mitochondrial DNA. I think the simplest explanation is that it comes from one individual, but it could have come from two brothers or a you know, mother and daughter or something like that, right? It's incredible to think that just with this technique, it's scooping up a handful of dirt, looking at DNA, you're potentially getting an insight into just a single individual that lived so long ago. I mean, how does it make you feel when you look at this data and, and start to imagine these people? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And for me, the thing that it really brings to mind is I wonder what happened, right? I wonder why that DNA from that person is there. One of the big open questions is where it, the DNA comes from. You know, we can imagine all sorts of ways that it might have accumulated from their skin cells. Maybe they spit on the ground. Maybe the, a baby pooped on the ground. Maybe they cut themselves in blood or something. But, you know, it would just be cool if we could tell what actually happened. Where did that DNA come from? give it a little more personality, right? So Neanderthals are one branch of our human ancestry. And then we've got other ones. We've got like Denisovans and potentially kind of weird shadowy ghosts in the human genome. So presumably this kind of technique we can then use to look at other places where ancient humans and, and the precursors of humans might have lived. Yeah, for sure. We're limited as I said, to, you know, DNA preservation. So for example, we know that the hobbit, right, this Homo floresiensis lived in Indonesia and that's a hot place. It's going to be really challenging to get DNA out of there. But, you know, one thing that's actually very nice about this is that it is, you could imagine, so you have a uh, Homo floresiensis and there's just a few bones from this hobbit and it may be sort of scientifically questionable or ethically questionable to drill those bones up and try to get DNA out of them because you don't have a very high expectation of success, right? But it is totally fine to take some dirt and try to get DNA out of it. And so I think that not only will we be able to expand sort of the, the locations and the places where we're able to look for our ancestors and look for our relatives, but we're going to be able to do so in maybe a bit more systematic way and not have to destroy sort of precious things in the process. It does seem to me that particularly in the past couple of years, this field of human origins, from a field that's looking at basically individuals that died many, many, many thousands of years ago, it's an incredibly alive field. And there seems to be new finds, new fossils, new DNA, new evidence coming out all the time. You know, it's a very much living field. What have been some of the most exciting recent discoveries to you? You know, we've seen this so-called dragon man going on, like what's going on? What What is the latest from the, the field of human origins? Yeah, I mean, there's almost so much that it's hard to keep up with. 
you know, and my perspective is the DNA perspective. And so many of the really cool things this year are actually new bones that I'm sure that people will then be trying to get DNA out of as well. But this Dragon Man is really cool. I think that with the Dragon Man, I think this is a Denisovan, right? I'm pretty convinced that we have finally found a Denisovan skull and that the authors just didn't want to go out and say that without having sort of very, very conclusive evidence for this. We know very, very little about Denisovans, but we know that they had a really large population and we know they didn't live in Europe, which sort of means they had to live in Asia, right? Because there's not really many other places for them to live. We only have a few bones from Denisovans, a few very, very large molars. So we know that they had really large molars and we have one tiny piece of a skull cap. And that skull cap is also really thick. So essentially the only physical thing we know about them is that they had big teeth and a thick skull. Chunky. Yeah, and that they lived in Asia, right? And they're bigger teeth and bigger skulls than humans or Neanderthals. And then we find, Chris Stringer and colleagues find this skull in Asia that has huge molars and a thick skull. I mean, this is a Denisovan, I think, right? But, you know, one will have to find, get some protein or DNA from it to really try to figure that out. But now this is really, really awesome. To have an actual skull from a Denisovan is great. It just, I find it so absolutely fascinating. I've been to a couple of conferences on human origins and genetics, and it's like mind-blowing the the discoveries that, that we're making even very recently. So what, what's coming next for you? What's the next project you're trying to get your teeth into, the next bits of dirt that you're going to dig up and sequence? Well, I mean, there are so many places that, you know, one of the reasons that we started this is because there are so many caves where you just don't have any human remains. You know, you see transitions between, say, Neanderthals and modern humans in Europe and Asia, and you don't know exactly when that happened. You see transitions in tool technology where the tools change, and you don't know if it's that Neanderthals learned something new or Neanderthals died out and humans arrived with a new tool technology. You know, and if we knew even just the answer to that question, if we were able to say, in this cave, we see a change in the tool type, and we see a DNA change that occurs with that, or we don't see a DNA change that occurs with that, right, then that sort of, let's say that you find that the new tools arrive and Neanderthals are still making them. I mean, then that means that Neanderthals learned from humans, right? And that would be a huge find. Um, so this, these are the sorts of questions that I really look forward to trying to answer. That's all for now. Thanks to my guests, Kieran Mitchell and Benjamin Verneau, for taking me on a trip back into the ancient past. We'll be back next time, going even further back in evolutionary time, to look at the very origins of life itself. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, just go to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, apparently, and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mail, and audio production is by the wonderful Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>